I'm going to be gone, my family, the next two weeks on vacation. We will miss you. We're going to finish this morning the, the life of Abraham. We're going to get right up to the end of his life almost. He, he dies in chapter 25. He won't quite see that, but he does die. Spoiler alert. The next three weeks, you'll be in the Gospel of John. Um, Jonathan Schrader and Brian Hendry and our own Dave Fenska will be opening God's Word from the Gospel of John in those three weeks, so look forward to that. We'll take a lengthy break from Genesis after this, but today, Genesis 24, let me pray for God's help, and then Nick is going to read uh, part of our passage for us. Father, what a privilege to to open your living and active word. And I know for me, my, my heart needs your help and your power to engage with your word, to commune with you through your word, and to be changed by your word. So Holy Spirit, would you manifest your presence? Would you make your presence known in those ways we ask you? And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us hear the word of the Lord from uh, Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels, departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose, went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know 
that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Nick. True story. Recently, an Oregon woman called the police, understandably, because she thought there was an intruder in her bathroom. She looked and she could see shadows moving underneath the bathroom door. The police arrived and quickly requested canine backup because they too could hear rustling in the bathroom. The police ordered the person to come out of the bathroom but got no response. So with guns drawn, they entered the door to encounter a Roomba robot vacuum cleaner. The police report said later, in good humor, to their credit, they said the Roomba was performing, quote, a very thorough vacuuming job. The article said there is no word yet if the Roomba had retained an attorney. I tell that story because perceptions matter. Perceptions matter. What, what we perceive about a situation defines reality for us in that situation. What we, what we perceive is really what we live out of in our lives. This lady perceived that there was an intruder in the bathroom, so she naturally called the police. She did the right thing. The police perceived that she was right. There was an intruder in the bathroom, and so they acted accordingly. They did the right thing. Perceptions matter, is my point. Perception defines reality for us, in effect, I want to ask you this, what's your perception of who or what is ruling this world and ruling over your life? What do you perceive about that? What's your perception on that front? We've got rogue nations, as they're called, seeking nuclear technology. You've got horrific violence around the world every day. And maybe in your own life, you're going through real challenges right now. Maybe there's some job uncertainty you're facing, or health uncertainty, or family difficulty, or financial difficulty. Those are all genuine trials. But in the midst of them, I want to ask you, what do you perceive is really happening? What do you perceive about who or what is, is ruling over your life in this moment? Perceptions matter. We're going to look at an account that describes for us what our perceptions in life ought to be. Describes for us how we ought to perceive what's really happening around us. It's from the life of a guy named Isaac, but Isaac plays a very small role, and yet it involves a crucial event in his life. Let's walk through it through three parts. We have to skip over a pretty high level, but three parts to see, friends, what we are to perceive. Let's call the first part the prioritized promises. First, let's see the, the prioritized promises. Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies the, the previous chapter, and, and Isaac, their son, is still single. And that's a problem. Not because singleness is a problem. It's a problem because of the promises God had made. Recall, 
Back to chapter 12, God had promised to make Abraham and his descendants into a great people and then give his descendants the land, the land of Canaan, where they're dwelling right now, and through him and his descendants to bring blessing to all peoples of the earth. So Isaac needs a wife so they can have children and the promises of a people and a land and blessing to all peoples can continue to move forward. Well, for that reason, Abraham calls his most trusted servant. And in verse 3, gives him one serious, solemn charge. Did you notice it? He says, swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell right now but will go back to my country and my kindred, my family, and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Now, just to be clear, this is not some prohibition against interracial marriage. It's a prohibition against losing the promises of God. See, because of their sin, God was going to judge the Canaanites. They would eventually, eventually disinherit the land that Isaac and his descendants were to inherit. This is not about race, it's about prioritizing the purposes of God. This descent that's supposed to happen, this relay race that's supposed to take place, handing off the baton one generation to the next to become a people, inherit this land, and bring blessing to all peoples of the earth. It's about allegiance to the living God. But this is like... It's like Mission Impossible for this servant. I imagine he's got the Mission Impossible music playing in his mind. Dun, 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 dun. Abraham, you want me to travel 400 miles back to your extended family, somehow identify the right gal for your son, bring her back to a land she's never seen, and marry a guy she's never met. This is a great plan. I love it, Abraham. But but look, what if it doesn't work out quite like that? Can I take Isaac back to your family over there? That might help out. Did you catch what Abraham said in verse 6? In verse 6, he says, See to it that you do not take my son back there. He's, he's not flexible on this one. And notice why in verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. It goes on in verse 8 to say again, don't take him over there. See, the issue for Abraham was the promises God had made. He's keeping together this promise of offspring, descendants, and the land together. And he says, everything, everything revolves around those promises. Everything revolves around those purposes. Look, Isaac is in the promised land right now, and don't let him leave this place. Not for anything. Now, we must be careful as we draw moral lessons from Old Testament narratives like this one. We never want to reduce the Old Testament to mere good advice 
when it's about good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet, there are lessons for us, I think. The Apostle Paul said of the Old Testament, our Old Testament, in Romans 15, verse 4, he said it was, quote, written for our instruction. Written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So, let's just consider even already what was written for our instruction. Let's draw a little lesson here. I mean, think back. We've been walking with this guy, Abraham, all the way since chapter 12. When he left everything, he left everything behind to follow the call of God in response to the promises of God. He, he left everything back in chapter 12. He's not been a perfect example as we've seen. Two times he has said to Sarah, his wife, look, don't tell them you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. Could get ugly for me if they find out you're my wife. So two times she's ended up in another man's household. Two times God's had to dramatically intervene. Why? To protect the promises. He's not been a perfect example. That should encourage us as well. But now near the end of his life, he's going to die in the next chapter. Now near the end of his life, he has this kind of Godly inflexibility about the purposes of God. Find a wife only from my family and not from these godless Canaanites. And whatever you do, do not, do not take him out of the promised land. If there is such a thing as a godly stubbornness, I think this is it. Abraham is absolutely committed to passing on the baton of God's promises in this relay race that's taking place. Near the end of his life here, near the end of his life, he is still orienting his life around the plans and purposes of God. I think that is helpful instruction for the Christian in itself, is it not? I mean, the command of Jesus to us is seek first the kingdom of God, right? Prioritize first. Prioritize the king and his reign, his kingdom and all these things, your needs, he says, will be added to you as well. It sounds a lot like what Abraham is doing here. So just pause and ask yourself, what does this Abraham-like prioritization maybe look like for you? Just drawing a little lesson. What might this look like in your life? Certainly for parents, it's doing all we can to hand off the baton of the good news of Jesus to our own children, isn't it? Certainly for parents, it's doing all we can to sow the seed of the Word of God and the Gospel of God into the hearts of our children. Certainly it's that. I think also we could apply this for maybe kind of a mentoring that we want to see happen in Grace Church. As, if you will, more mature saints mentor and encourage younger saints in, in the Lord as, as maybe older members are investing into younger members. Maybe it's, maybe it's investing into the young adults. Maybe it's investing into a young couple. Maybe it's investing into brand new parents to mentor and encourage and, and help them. We want to see that happen more and more in Grace Church. See the baton handed off. Maybe 
maybe it could be for you prioritizing context here in your, in your calendar that help you grow as a disciple and make other disciples. Could be something like that. It could be maybe even serving on a ministry team that needs help or, or meeting some needs in your home group. Look, I can't tell you what this ought to look like by way of application for you. But I do think Abraham here, near the end of his life, would say to us, at the end of your life, you will have no regrets if you prioritize the purposes of God over everything else. That's the prioritized promises, setting the context, leading, secondly, to the prayerful mission, kind of the heart of the passage, the, the prayerful mission. This trusted servant takes the 400-mile journey, finally gets to the area from which Abraham is originally from. But how will he find the young lady whom God has appointed to be a wife for Isaac so that the baton can continue to be handed off? It's a real problem. How am I going to find her? So he prays. Verse 12. O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success in this mission. Grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. That, that's the basis for his prayer. That's the motivating factor. Show steadfast love to my master, your loyal love to my master Abraham. I'm counting on your steadfast love. I'm, I'm cashing this check at the bank of your faithfulness. He prays on that basis and then he asks God to lead him through a rather interesting test. Verse 13. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed, whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love, loyal love and faithfulness to my master. Did you catch that? He wants the lady God has appointed to be Isaac's wife to give him water and then volunteer to get water for all the camels. He wants to have her give him water and then probably make multiple trips to the well with her jug carrying a gallon or two so that she can water, provide water to all the camels. And this guy has 10 of them. Now, I read that a thirsty camel can drink 25 gallons of water. So you do the math. This is a lot of water. It sounds like he's testing God, but it's really a kind of character test for the young lady he's looking for. It's not a model for how to discern God's will in your life. It's not an example for how to make important decisions or how to find a spouse. But God uses this little test. God uses, he works with it 
and answers this prayer because it's in line with his sovereign will to find a wife for Isaac and to hand off the baton and forward the promises. So, verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, I, I love that, before he'd finished his prayer, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The divine narrator has just told us that Rebekah is from Abraham's family, just like the servant is supposed to find. But he doesn't know that yet, right? We're clued in advance. So he asked Rebekah for a drink. And lo and behold, she says, I'll give you a drink, and I'll get water for all your thirsty beasts as well. And note the vividness of this account, beginning in verse 20. Verse 20. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again, ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels, all ten of them, the man, the servant, gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And she loved that. She's running back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He's just staring. He's just wondering, oh, Lord, is this her already? Have you made my mission a success already? So he says in verse 23, please, please, Tell me whose daughter you are. And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to, eight, to Nahor. Bingo. Right? right character, right family. This must be the right gal. And the servant responds in the only appropriate way. He worships God in verse 27. Blessed be, or praise be, the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has, notice, not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. God answered my prayer because of his steadfast, loyal, faithful love to my master Abraham. Now keep that in mind. But maybe pause there as well just to draw another lesson. This guy prays before he acts and praises as God answers. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner notes that the servant is giving, quote, living form, living form to the charge, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, verse 6. I think he's right. The servant is giving living form to that charge in Proverbs 3, verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge him. God will, in his faithfulness, direct you. He does that here. The servant does that here, acknowledging God by praying. That's helpful for me. How about you? I don't know. I don't know where you're perplexed right now. I don't know where you're unsure of what to do. Might be, might be as a parent. Parents, we often face those situations. Might be with a, a decision confronting you. You're not sure what to do. Might be even just how to respond to a difficult situation 
at work or at home. Here's the place to begin. Acknowledge in all your ways. Acknowledge him like this servant does with prayer. God, I'm counting on your steadfast love. I'm cashing this check at the bank of your faithfulness. Please help me. And the faithful God will. That's the prayerful mission. Leading lastly to the forwarded purposes. Lastly, let's call this the forwarded purposes. In this story where we've paused, there's still a lot to be resolved. Still a lot to be resolved. I mean, what, what is Rebecca's family going to think about her going 400 miles away with some guy they just met to marry a guy they've never met? Moms and dads, put, put yourself in their shoes. What are you going to think about that? Yes, some of you shaking your heads no. What's Rebecca going to think? Going to a land, never been, with a guy I've never met, marry a guy I've never met. Mission is not over yet. So the servant goes to their home. They set food before him. He won't eat a bite, he says, until he finds out whether or not his mission has been successful. He tells them the whole story. The prayer, the water thing, the Rebecca response. He ends in verse 49 saying, Now then, looking out at her family, Now then, if you are going to show me steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. He's saying, look, God has shown his loyal love to Abraham. Are you going to do the same? Are you going to cooperate with God's purposes? Are you going to show the loyal love that God himself has shown? And Rebecca's brother and father respond in verse 50, the thing has come from the Lord. The thing has come from the Lord. So they have a party, and in the morning, the servant wants to hit the road. Family says, give us 10 more days together. They are understandably wanting more time with Rebecca. Who knows when they'll see her again, if they'll see her again. In the morning, I'm sorry, at that point, the servant is eager. The family says, let's ask Rebecca. This is a key moment. Rebecca, will you go? I mean, everything's riding on this. Rebecca, will you go with a guy we just met and marry a guy you've never met in a land we have no idea about? Everything's riding on this, and she says, I will go. As one commentator put it, she's really mirroring Abraham's response back in chapter 12 when he too left everything for the plans and purposes of God. Rebecca here is another example of faith for us leaving all behind because she believes God is calling her to do this. And the story ends happily, verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So, 
ready now for another stage of the relay race, aren't we? The baton is being passed from Abraham and Sarah now to Isaac and Rebekah. The promises of God are being passed forward. The, the purposes of God are being forwarded now. So I want to get back to my original question. What do you perceive? Remember, perception defines reality for us in effect. We live our lives out of our perceptions of any situation. What, what do you perceive is happening here? What do you perceive about who or what is really forwarding these purposes and plans, promises? Is it Abraham's prioritization of the promises, this godly inflexibility that carries the day? Well, that's a factor. Is it this servant's faith-filled prayer, acknowledging God in all his ways? That's a factor. But friends, the key to it all is God acting according to his steadfast love and faithfulness. You might have noticed I accented that every time I read it. And that's why the servant prays in verse 12. Oh Lord, show steadfast love to Abraham. That's what the servant is looking for in verse 14. By this I shall know you have shown steadfast love. That's why he worships God in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness. It's what he calls Rebecca's family to in verse 49. Are you going to show steadfast love and faithfulness or not? Tell me. You see the point, don't you? The, the undercurrent moving everything forward inexorably, is God acting according to his steadfast love and faithfulness. A, a key concept in Scripture, you might think of it as God's loyal love. God's loyal love. It's his, it's his covenant-making, promise-keeping love. It's his always faithful Never wavering from his purposes, never wavering from his promises, kind of love. That's what's moving everything forward, friends. Everything moves forward because God is keeping his promises and forwarding his purposes out of his steadfast, faithful love. For the Israelites, oh, 3,400 years ago, about to enter this promised land as a nation, receiving this book, that's what they were to perceive. God's steadfast love and faithfulness, moving things forward. For us today, what should we perceive? Oh, the very same thing. The very same thing. God's steadfast love and faithfulness, his loyal love to his people, forwarding all his plans, accomplishing all his purposes, fulfilling all his promises. You are to perceive that, and I think in response, entrust yourself to that God. Entrust yourself to the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. I, I, I almost want to use the word abandon. In your heart, you abandon yourself to this God and his steadfast love and faithfulness. Yes, act responsibly, 
I mean, prioritize rightly like Abraham did. Yes, be dependent on God through prayer, absolutely. But in your heart, in your heart, a kind of holy abandonment to God because you perceive how secure you are in His steadfast love and faithfulness, forwarding all of His plans, accomplishing all of His purposes. Let me give you a picture of what I mean of having a heart abandoned to God and entrusting God, yourself to God, because you're so secure like that. My son Stephen turned 13 last month, special birthday, and so I promised him an overnight trip with dad wherever he wanted to go within driving distance. Now, Stephen loves roller coasters. I do not. I don't understand paying good money to stand in long lines for someone to inflict terror on me. I don't get that. Thank you, Dave. But for Stephen, that's fun, so off we went to Magic Mountain last weekend. First, we rolled, re rode the Gold Rush roller coaster. On the ground the whole time, it's kind of cute, really. I mean, it's a little bit of jostling, but I was okay. I was okay with that. We did it twice. Stephen was getting me warmed up. He walked me over to the, the ninja. Yeah. I was a little concerned because the ninja is this car that hangs from the rail above you, so you go around the curves and you, you swing out like this, and you swing out like this. But I did that three times, and I was okay. In fact, I was feeling pretty good about myself. I thought, I think I have overcome my fear of roller coasters. I think, I think God is meeting me by His grace and honoring my plan to honor my son, and I have grace to ride any roller coaster here. And then I re-examined the map. And I had a bit of a sinking feeling as I realized they have classified their roller coasters on this map and the Ninja is classified as a kind of middle-of-the-road roller coaster approved for small children. <laughs> and there's a whole nother classification, or maybe two above that, in which they called, like, extreme thrill-seeking. And, of course, that's where Stephen wanted to go. And so we rode next the Twisted Colossus. How many have rode, ridden, rather, the Twisted Colossus? A number of you. God bless you. <laughs> you are first strapped in by an industrial strength seat belt. A bar comes over your head. And this was new. Your feet are also locked in place. That's a bad sign. When they lock your feet in place, get off the roller coaster. My feet are locked in place. The bar is over me. Industrial strength seat belt. And then it's up, up, up. And I have a problem with heights. And I don't know how high you are. You're way up high. And then it is an 80-degree plunge down, down, down. And then it's this way and this way. And over you, upside down you go. And upside down you go. And you hang upside down this way. And you go up back and forth. And then it does the whole thing again. It's four minutes of sheer terror. I kid you not, I did not look around. I did not want to know how high I was or what was coming next. I just focused on the car in front of me and I held on this little strap until my pinky began to bruise. 
And I was like this, I look over the second time we're riding it, and my son Stephen is like this, had his hands up the entire ride. Now, two very different experiences. Why? Well, out of two very different perceptions. I perceived that I might die. I was praying Psalm 51 the whole time, crying out to God that I would survive this. God have mercy on me, the sinner. I thought my perception was I may very well die. His perception was, Stephen's perception was, I am so secure right now, I can abandon myself and enjoy this ride. One, I mean, same ride. We both experienced the same ride. One rides with sheer terror. One rides with this kind of abandonment because he feels so secure. I want to ask you, which one of those better represents your experience of late? Which one of those experiences is a closer approximation to your heart posture recently, this week, this month? This year, are you more like me, Ah, hanging on for dear life, or more like Stephen? I feel so secure. Now, don't misunderstand. I am not saying, I am not saying that life is just one big amusement park ride. I'm not saying that everything is easy. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, in light of this passage, it's possible to entrust yourself to God like that in your heart. It's all about what you perceive is really happening. What you perceive about God, His nature, and His character as he runs this world and rules your life. If your heart regularly looks like me on that roller coaster, filled with anxiety and worry and even fear, then friends, there is a different experience God wants you and me to have. It comes from perceiving with the lens of Scripture God's steadfast love and faithfulness, fulfilling all of his purposes, plans, and promises. It comes from perceiving that God will keep his promise like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It comes from perceiving that God will fulfill his promise like, nothing can separate from you, you from my love or, or snatch you out of my hand. It comes from perceiving God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his people, which will never let you go, fulfill all his promises, meaning you are absolutely secure in him and can entrust yourself entirely to him.
because we know where this relay race goes after Genesis 24. We know there's a bigger picture here, a larger storyline being forwarded. After Genesis 24, centuries pass, lots of ups and downs. It's quite the roller coaster for the people of God. Until finally, in a backwater town called Nazareth, God fulfills his promise of blessing to all peoples as an angel goes to a young lady named Mary, says, You're going to have a child in God's steadfast love and faithfulness. So the promised blessing to the nations arrives in the flesh named Jesus in God's steadfast love and faithfulness. He lives a perfect life, obeying in all the ways we should but never could in God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Then he, then he gave his life on a cross, bearing the judgment of God, the wrath of God against the sins of everyone who will believe in God's steadfast love and, and faithfulness. And then that promised one rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven from where we await his return in God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And until then, like we sang about, he reigns until every enemy is put under his feet, every promise of God is fulfilled, and every purpose of God is fully accomplished by God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, that's what you must perceive out of Genesis chapter 24 that you might realize how secure you are in Christ and entrust yourself to this God. It might be with your job right now. It might be with your finances right now. It might be with your health. It might be with your family or your future. Whatever that is, friends, in this moment, take the word of God to heart. Realize how secure you are. Perceive that, and in your heart, abandon yourself to God and his steadfast love. He is keeping all of his promises and forwarding all of his purposes because of his loyal love to you in Christ. We want to close by helping our hearts trust him like that as we take the Lord's Supper. So would the music team please come?